0: Now let's turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 66 I'm going to look today from verse 10 through to verse 14 at some of the features of that passage and particularly noting how uh, the Lord here describes his people or the church or Zion as a mother who cares for her children and in various ways we find that detailed through these verses uh, the mother as someone who bears and gives birth and nurses and then nurtures and looks after and cares and protects the children that she brings into the world and the lord is using that or isaiah is using that the lord through isaiah is using that to convey a very important message to those that are mentioned in isaiah frequently as the remnant or the godly remnant Because in Isaiah's day, the godly were an exception to the norm. They were an exception to the majority. And so he is addressing this in verse 5, for example. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Having said earlier that this is the one to whom I will look. In verse 2, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, God is sending encouragement through the prophet to that minority who in his day we holding to his truth and living godly lives, but surrounded by massive defection on the part of the majority of the people, for which eventually exile came upon them in the days of um, the Nebuchadnezzar, who came to take so many into captivity and to destroy the temple that was placed in Jerusalem. Well, we owe so much, don't we, to good mothers, especially to godly mothers strong bond that we have with our mothers, especially with mothers that have been so caring to us as we've been brought up by them. That bond is something that we are so conscious of, particularly when uh, our mothers come to leave this world and are taken from us. It's the mother very often that teaches us so many principles for life. Our mother teaches us words, behavior, To distinguish right from wrong, wisdom, love, compassion, all of the things that mothers in their care and nurture for their children pass on to us, and that follows up into adulthood. And how we miss mothers once they're taken from us, even after many years have elapsed. Many of us, if not all of us, can look back and look back with affection and gratitude to God for the mothers we had that are now gone, sometimes some of us long gone. Nevertheless, our memory of them is rich and precious, and we continue to hold what they taught us precious in our hearts as well. That's really the kind of thing that Isaiah is using to convey this message to those that he is addressing here as the minority, as we've said, and describing, Zion describing the way that God has provided for his people things which are Uh, represented, if you like, by a mother caring for our our children. Uh, So we're we're looking at mother church, if you like, you know that sometimes the church is regarded uh, in some Christian traditions as more than what scripture warrants and that the church really takes over from the scripture itself or from God's presence through the scripture that we come to rely upon the church rather than upon Jesus Christ and upon God. And that's obviously taking things too far in the sense of church being a mother to us. But there's a very legitimate way in which we can think of the church as our mother. Now, of course, we are the church, the visible church. The church is made up of people, of people like ourselves. Um, So there's a bit of tension, I know, between thinking of the church as our mother, as if that uh, was something other than ourselves. But the imagery is there so that all that God has given to the church and the church as a a spiritual body, if you like, an institution, I use the word reluctantly, but you know what I mean, when the church is organized in the way of people coming together to be related and bonded together and worshiping together, worshiping God, the church in that sense, that collective sense, And all that God has given to the church, as we'll see, provides spiritual mothering for us, for which we should continue to be thankful. That's the first point we're looking at today, the church as a caring mother. Secondly, we're going to look at the children's relationship or life with their mother, the church. The church as a caring mother. Well, here in the passage you find The church is represented and pictured as giving birth to children and bearing children, giving them birth and then nurturing them. It's not that the church converts people. It's not that we're converted by the church, not even by simply belonging to the church. Only God can convert. Only God can change lives. But uh, that actually doesn't actually um, do away with the importance of belonging to the church of being found within the confines of the church as a spiritual body and in fact the church some of the early church fathers and right down through to the time of the reformers and even nearer own time as well spoke of the church in very similar fashion. Let me give you two examples. Um, a church father called Cyprian of Carthage who wasn't reliable in everything that he wrote. He lived about 251 that was a couple of hundred years after Christ This is what he said. He uh, said, he cannot, that means he or she, cannot have God as a father who does not have the church as a mother. We cannot have God as a father without having the church as a mother. And then John Calvin, uh, one of the most famous of the reformers, uh, around 1559 or so wrote, because it is our intention now to discuss the visible Church, let us learn even from the simple title Mother how useful, indeed how necessary it is, that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this Mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish it at us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance. Until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Moreover, he continued, furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins, or any salvation, as Isaiah 37:32 and Joel 2:32 testify. Now, John Calvin didn't mean that it was absolutely impossible for somebody to be converted unless he was already within the church. But what he's telling us is we have no warrant, we have uh, uh, no sense of expectancy of being saved if we deliberately place ourselves outside of the confines or the borders of the visible church where the gospel is preached, where God's people come together to worship. That's what what Calvin meant when he said there, um, furthermore, away from her bosom one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins. Well, thanks be to God, some people are converted who are never in the church, who never belong to the church. You see that in the New Testament when uh, the gospel went out, when the apostles preached the gospel in pagan cities like Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus. People came to know the Lord. They'd never been in the church. They'd never been part of the church. But as soon as they were converted, as soon as the Lord changed their lives, what happened? They were baptized. They were brought into the church. They were taken into membership of the church. Into the bosom, as Calvin said, in which we are nurtured, in which we are brought forth, in which we are nurtured. And so, that's what you find um, in the teaching of Scripture and in the Reformers and in their thought and in the early church fathers. The church is such an important feature in their lives. It is a spiritual mother to us as we come to know God through the gospel and that's our evangelistic concern as well, isn't it? Our evangelistic concern as we seek to witness to the Gospel and reach out with the Gospel is to bring people to Jesus, absolutely. To bring people to know Christ, to bring people to be converted by coming, as we're looking at in the evenings, to know an encounter with Christ in a saving way. That's our objective. That's what our primary concern is as a church, with the Gospel to come to bring people to be saved. But you must never detach that from bringing people into the church. It doesn't make sense in the teaching of Scripture. You cannot actually detach or separate people coming to know Jesus as Savior from people coming to be part of His church. A close contact with Christ means coming to be a participant in the life of the church. The life of Christ, if you like, through the church or in the church. That's why it's so important that we actually see that um, in our attempts to reach out to people, yes, you maybe have to begin with steps that will be less than actually these people coming to church and coming to church services. But that is still your objective. Even if you have to have some preliminary steps in order to try and encourage them towards that, that's still your objective, under the main objective of being converted and coming to know the Lord. We have to actually emphasize the importance of the church in its own right. The church as a mother, the church where we are nurtured, the church where we're taught, the church where we're brought to know Christ better, the church where we enjoy fellowship with the rest of God's people, the church where we come to know God's promises, where we feed upon His Word, where we partake of the sacraments. See, all of that is what Mother provides us with, the nurturers. We'll see in a minute that God gives to the church for us to be provided with. And so, you see, these people would have been encouraged there by the likes of verse 9. This small remnant, this people struggling against the majority who had defected from the faith. Shall I bring, his God is saying, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I cause to bring forth, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God. In other words, you cannot frustrate God's purpose in bringing people to life and bringing people to know himself. And he's encouraging that remnant to continue in their faithfulness and to continue to regard God himself as the one who provides for them, but to, con- uh, to continue also to have confidence in the ordinances, if we use that word, that God gave to his people then, the, the sacrifices, the way in which God had built all of that for them in order to convey himself and a relationship with himself. He's saying, don't actually do away with these things. Don't think that these things are outmoded. It's just that people have chosen uh, other things instead of them or have added to them or imported other things as you find there from in verse 17, for example, or verses 3 uh, through to 4 there, where he describes the activities really reverting back in many ways to paganism The people of Israel and Judah had actually allowed themselves or brought themselves to import all of these things into the worship of God, into the church of the time. But he's saying to the faithful people, don't actually lose confidence in the means that God has established. That's so important for you and for me in days when people are defecting from the church or criticizing the church or finding fault with the church. I'll mention in a minute something about that. Don't lose your confidence in the gospel. Don't lose your confidence in the preaching of God's truth. Don't lose your confidence in what it means to be together as a worshipping people. Don't let the world actually seduce you into thinking that some way or other, these things are outmoded, these things don't belong in the church of the modern age, of the modern day, or the present day. God is saying, I have provided the church with the means of nurturing my children. And you see, that's why, uh, if you take verse 9 again, God is emphasizing, if I bring to the point of birth, will I not cause to bring forth? If I'm working in somebody's life, if my promise is that I I will bless the means that I've used, who's going to actually stand in the way of that? Who's going to successfully reverse that? That's what Balaam found out, isn't it, in the book of Numbers when Balak hired him to come and curse the people of Israel that he could see from the heights. He was looking down on them just like evil powers are looking down upon ourselves as God's people. And Balak had said, come and curse these people for me. And God met with Balaam this wicked soothsayer. Uh, uh, that he was, and he put words in his mouth, and he had to speak the words that God gave him. And the words that God gave him were words of blessing to his people. And when he came to a very annoyed Balak, the king was saying, after he heard ba- ba- Balaam speak these words a number of times, What is this that you have done? I brought you here to curse these people. Instead of cursing them, you have blessed them. And Balaam said, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I bless whom God has not blessed? Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Or go forward to the time of, of Nehemiah, where you find uh, such opposition to what Nehemiah was leading as the people had made their way back from exile to Jerusalem or beginning to build or rebuild a temple there as a place, as a center of worship and building up the structure of a worshiping people You can read in the book of Nehemiah all the opposition that they then immediately faced. And Nehemiah many times had to encourage the people that what God had begun these opponents around them however much they seemed to be all powerful, they couldn't actually thwart what God was doing. And then you find the same emphasis all the way through scripture. Take for example the book of the Acts of the Apostles and take the way that Uh, in these early days of the apostles, as the church was advancing, as God was bringing more people into the church, as the gospel was making a real impact in pagan centers, like these great cities, attempts were being made by the likes of King Herod, and others, to actually stem this, to actually stand in the way of this, and push it back, and try and stop what was happening. Well, Herod lost his life over it. And God demonstrated that, you just could not stop God when his mind is to bless his people, and you remember too when he wrote to uh, when god uh, when uh, Paul under god wrote to um to Timothy in second timothy and, and chapter two um you recall there what uh, the, the situation that Timothy faced as God through Paul was uh, encouraging him to continue faithful in his ministry um and he was aware of course then that people again, were defecting from the faith. People were causing others to leave the faith and to leave the church. Second um, Timothy 2, verses 17 to 19 is uh, Paul's response. He says, um, do your best, he says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like a gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philatus. who have sweared from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But, and this is, uh, this is Paul's response God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of God depart from iniquity. The foundation stands. God has added his seal to it. He knows those who are his. And that church is bringing up children. There's nourishment for children. Look at verse 11. The imagery there of an infant uh, sucking the breast of the mother, being breastfed, And uh, he's using that as an image of the church that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. What do we have in the church? What has God provided for us in the church? He has provided His Word especially. He has provided sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are they for? They are for us to actually drink deeply from. To drink deeply from. The resources that God has given His church are tremendous. Do we really appreciate? I'm sure I don't. And I'm sure you don't yourself to the extent that you'd want to. Do we really appreciate what God has given us in the fullness of the gospel? Do we really appreciate the abundance of blessing that we have in Jesus Christ? Look at the way Paul wrote to the Ephesians to say that God actually had exalted Him and set Him above in in the heavenly places. And he talks then of uh, being blessed out of that blessing that is deposited in Christ what can you, how can you possibly not see fullness when you think of Jesus risen from the dead and exalted to glory that is an abundance of fullness that God is laying before us in the gospel are we drinking deeply of what God has given to his church are we satisfied with skimming the surface Do we just come and dip our toes into this ocean of blessing? Or are we going to be a people, I'm sure you are, a people who want really more and more as you think of the benefits of belonging to the church, of being within the church and the provisions that God has made for us there. Well, he's saying to us here, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Is that not what we put before ourselves today, before we came to church, as we prepared to come to worship God together? That we were going to come to drink abundantly of the resources of the gospel. That we were really going to delve into, as much as possible, by the Spirit of God, those rich things that God has given us and deposited in His church for our benefit. Well, that's what He's saying to us. He has given us the resources. He has given us his spirit. He has given us the sacrament. He has given us his word. He has given us to value the word as it's preached and explained to us. He has given us to value fellowship with each other. To actually learn from each other. To actually know support for and from one another. Friends, drink deeply. Because if we don't, we're going to be weak spiritually. We're going to be easily moved by the seductive ways of the world. We're going to actually be taken aside through the suggestions of the evil one. Just like Paul was writing to the uh, Ephesians again. You remember there in chapter 4 that he spoke for one thing about the importance of the unity of God's people and the unity of the Spirit, as he called it, to maintain that, on our part, in the bonds of peace, and he then emphasised the uh, oneness of the body, one Lord and one faith and one baptism. But then he goes on to speak about uh, using the blessings that God gave through Christ to His church. He gave gifts to men. He ascended up on high, and he gave he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a really deep verse to explain, but the important verse in many ways is the next one, the purpose for all that. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto... That's the church. That's the benefit of one of the benefits of belonging to the church, that we are able in speaking the truth in love to one another, not just in preaching from a pulpit, to grow up unto Christ, to grow up to maturity, And God has given us all the resources we need as a congregation in order to do that. He has placed His Word in our midst. He has given us the preaching of the Gospel. He has given us the benefits of unity. May we indeed strive and pray to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Why? Because our very progress depends upon it. That we may no longer be children like infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by the cunningness of human beings you go out there outside of the church you'll find many things that will draw your attention that will seek to draw you away from what you believe in from what you're committed to and in many ways you find likes of Psalm 73 where the psalmist was at the point of slipping away he was envious at those he saw in the world of the wicked he says until he said, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. He then understood how far he had slid away from faithfulness to God, from faithfulness to God's truth. And it's here, it's in the church, it's where the gospel is, it's where God's people gather, that you and I are nourished. That you and I are built up. That you and I have strengthening from God. That you and I are defended against defection. That you and I can appreciate what it is to drink deeply of these resources that God has given. So the church, as our mother, in all of these ways, there are more we could say about that, and I've said more than I intended. But bearing and giving birth to children... But also in looking after, bringing up the children, nourishing the children. That's what we have in belonging to the church. That's what we have when we are are partakers of, or participants, in the resources that God has given to the church. Secondly, the children's life with mother. I'm just going to mention three things very briefly. Again, just building on the imagery of uh, a mother looking after her children. First of all, their love for their mother. Just as you love a faithful, loving mother, so you love the church. you appreciate all that the church is, all that the church provides through what God has given us, uh, what God has given her. you love her so that you uphold her reputation, so that you commend this church to those that have uh, cause to find so much fault with her. You defend, you protect the church. That's not to say that you don't also admit the wrongs that sometimes take place. Admit there are sins and defections and defects. There's all of that. But we have to love the church. We have to love her as God actually describes her in the truth as a mother to our souls. We have to love her for that. We have to make sure that we meaningfully partake of all that she provides. Not only do we love her, but there's also the element of sorrow. You see here how uh, in verse 10, as he's addressing these uh, faithful people that still remain in Jerusalem, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her rejoice with her enjoy. All you who mourn over it. Now, by building into one verse the element of joy, and also, as we'll see in a minute, but also mourning. Why is there an element of mourning? Why is he combining these elements of, of joy and of mourning? Well, because as a very small remnant, as they're surrounded with ungodliness, as they're surrounded with defections, they mourn over what's happened in Zion. They mourn over what's happening to these people that are in covenant with God, that have departed from obedience and faithfulness to God, and are doing all of these things instead. Look at verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. You look at the opening chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, and there's a string of accusations there from God as to how far the mass of the people, the majority of them, have departed from the ways of the Lord. He says it's just like a body that's full of infection and sores. From the top of the head to the Soul of the footers, putrefaction, that's this description of Zion, this description of these people, these covenant people of God, and these faithful people are mourning over that, and today you're mourning today you're mourning over defection from the truth, you're mourning over so much doctrinal defection, so much welcome over to things that the Bible calls sinful. that's the church. We're not talking about the world at the moment. We're talking people, about people who give themselves the name of Christians. We're talking about people who preach or who actually have positions in the church. I'm talking about the wider sense of the church in our nation. That actually are recommending things which the Bible condemns. How have we come to this? What should we do about this? Well, the one thing, one thing we should do is mourn. Bring our pain to God. We have a week of prayer Uh, this week. uh, uh, Christian Institute have a week of prayer and they're calling on us to join with them in that week of prayer. Well, we are in a situation in our nation and in the church in our nation that really needs us to pray over. And as you come to pray in all of these ways in which you recognize defection and unfaithfulness and heresy and the, uh, and the recommending, the promotion of relationships or personal lifestyles that we know are out of keeping with what God is saying. In verse 4 there you find, they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I didn't, in which I did not delight. That is God speaking to our generation. That is God speaking to the church in our land today. In Every place where God finds what is offensive according to his own standard of righteousness, what do we do about it? Do we just say that's another denomination, doesn't belong to us? does belong to us if it's the church if it goes by the name of the church then we have a responsibility to mourn you know if you're as I have been and many of you have been by the bedside of a mother who's dying it's a very mournful situation you'd rather not be there you'd wish there was something you could do to turn things around but when the medical experts have told you don't expect recovery I'm sorry there would just be one outcome as far as we can see Well, you mourn over the fact that your mother is dying how could it be otherwise but what Isaiah is saying is it should be like that when the church is dying when the church has marks of death about her when the church is infected spiritually so that to all appearances it seems that she is in dying mode well he's saying I'm crying to you I'm saying to you who are crying over her and mourning to mourn over her as you rejoice in my promises nevertheless mourn for Zion mourn over what's happened be sorry as you see the church in the process of dying. Now, of course we know the promise of God is the church will never actually die out through to the end of time. There will always be people in the world who will bear his name and who will be faithful to him. Who will be his people. And that's some consolation. But it's little consolation if you think of the church in Lewis. The church in Scotland, the church in the UK dying on its deathbed. Maybe that sounds extreme. Maybe it is extreme. But when you look at things, if it goes on unchecked, what else is there for it? But to say, yes, there'll be a faithful people, but churches church is in death throes. May it not be? May there be revival? May it be, as we sang in Psalm 126, the Lord restoring the captivity of Zion, turning things around, coming again with his mighty power. But meantime, there's a place for mourning, and a place for being prayerfully mournful over the church. Well, thirdly, there's joy, there's delight in what God has what God has promised to his people. Verse 14, again there, you shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. There's still days of, of great Uh, joy ahead for the people of God. Of course, this is really taking us into the New Testament age, which uh, Isaiah, by by God's um, uh, inspiration, if you like, was able to, to speak about. But nevertheless, he's calling upon this remnant to rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. While you mourn over defection, while you mourn over departure from the truth, Rejoice in God's promises. Rejoice in what you have. Rejoice in the abundance that you still have access to. Rejoice in the fact that you belong here in this congregation and in this church to a people who are committed to the Lord. Rejoice in the way that God holds before you in word, in sacrament, in fellowship, in prayer. Everything that is designed to make your your soul rejoice and to maintain you in spiritual health. Rejoice over all the promises God has given to his church, even for the future, however dark the days presently may seem to be. And that joy is a joy in verse 12 that's spoken of us, extending peace like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Well, what you have in Christ is something to rejoice over. Whatever you see around you, whatever you see in the current age and position and condition of the church widely, rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the delights that are in Him. Rejoice in the river of peace from God that you find in Christ. Ephesians comes to mind again, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. God has brought about this river of peace well-being that flows through the gospel into our hearts. And that's the primary function of the church, to convey the truth of the gospel to the world around us. So three things in conclusion. Praise God that you are children of this mother. Secondly, pray to God for the well-being of this mother. Because your well-being depends to a great extent on the continuing health of Mother Church. Praise God that you are her children. Pray to God for her well-being. And thirdly, progress your life spiritually under her care. Don't neglect the provisions that you find in Mother Church. Whenever and wherever you can be a partaker of the gospel, be there. Be there to drink deeply of her resources. And God bless these thoughts to us. Let's pray.